This is The Guardian. They're found in the blood of people in Oatman, Arizona, and they are found in the blood of people in Fargo, Dakota. They are found in me. They are found in my kids. They are found in every one of you. That's actor and environmental campaigner Mark Ruffalo talking to US politicians about PFAS, aka Forever Chemicals, so-called because once an environment is contaminated with them, they stick around for a long, long time, building up and up. They've been found pretty much everywhere, in the environment, in animals, and even in our blood. But a new investigation has revealed the scale of the pollution in the UK and Europe and discovered high levels of forever chemicals at thousands of sites. So what are PFAS? How toxic are they? And what can we do to protect ourselves, to reduce their impact, or just to avoid them completely? From The Guardian, I'm Madeleine Finlay, and this is Science Weekly. Rachel Salvage, you're an environmental journalist and founder of Watershed, an investigative organisation focusing on water issues, and you've just published an investigation in The Guardian about PFAS, so-called forever chemicals. So to start us off, what exactly are PFAS? PFAS, it, it, can, it stands for per and polyfluoral alkyl substances. So I'm quite pleased that, <laughs> that we have a shorthand for it. Um, but it's an umbrella term for a family of thousands of chemicals. So around 10,000, or I've actually seen a study saying that there might be around 12,000 on the market at the moment. And they're prized for their indestructible non-stick properties. So if something is greaseproof or waterproof, it's likely that there is a PFAS doing that job in that product. It was originally the Teflon chemical. That was, that's how you had your non-stick pan, but you can get it in waterproof clothing. It's in carpets and furniture. And then it's in firefighting foams, which are a little bit different, and, and lots and lots of industrial processes. And that means they're leaching out into the environment in many, many different ways. And PFAS are called forever chemicals because once they're in the environment, they hang about, right? This is their property. They're called... Um, Forever chemicals, as you say, because of that, because the, the scientific term is they're persistent and essentially they won't break down ever. Or, you know, maybe if they do, it's going to be in tens and tens of thousands of years. So the fact that we've got a big load out there in the environment already, but we're continually adding to it and it doesn't go away. So the problem is getting bigger and bigger every day. And it's very difficult for public interest science to then pick one of those chemicals and then prove that it's creating harm because that's a really difficult thing to do. So for two of these chemicals, two of the 10 to 12,000, PFOS and PFOA, there's been lots of study on those two, and it has been found that they are harmful, and as a result, they've been banned or restricted. But to imagine that they can do that for the 10 to 12,000 PFASs, I mean, that's just not going to happen in anyone's lifetime. So there is a move out there to regulate the entire class of chemicals as one. The EU would like to do that. There's a proposal for that. But um, in the UK, we're rather further behind. So when you say these chemicals are harmful, are you talking about the impact that they have on us, our health? Yes, definitely. So PFOA has been linked to six diseases. So that is high cholesterol, 
ulcerative colitis, thyroid disease, testicular cancer, kidney cancer, and pregnancy-induced hypertension. PFOS as well, that's been linked to um, problems with the immune system. I think they've both been linked to low birth weight, a range of birth defects. Um, one study has showed that it's a, a Danish study, it came out in 2022, has found that exposure to PFAS is during early pregnancy, it means that the child later on in life could have a lower sperm count. So there are concerns because they can you know, disrupt hormones and development. Gosh, I mean, the fact that they have such a big impact on our health, do we know anything about the effect that they have on the environment? They move around in the environment. We've seen that they are in high levels in soils and water and even in the air because they can be airborne too. And they sort of biomagnify up the food chain. So if you're higher up the food chain, when you eat your prey, you're going to get a really heavy dose. And I think Cardiff University, for example, they've done some studies with otters and they found that at high levels within the otters that they really shouldn't be there. It's not clear the impacts that they're having, but it's in these animals at high levels and it just shouldn't be there. This takes us on to your investigation. Together with your watershed colleague, Liana Hosea, and following on from the work of a number of European organisations, you got information from companies and environment agencies like the Centre for Environment, Fisheries and Aquaculture Science, CFAS, to create a map of where PFAS had been found across the UK and Europe – And listeners, you can find this map on theguardian.com if you want to take a look. But Rachel, how did you begin to look at this? First of all, we're looking at the individual data sets and finding, looking at what the water companies had found in the drinking water sources, what the Environment Agency was finding in groundwater and rivers, what CFAS was finding in uh, fish and sediments, and collated all that together to see what we could actually you know, if we, if we could build this map and build a picture of the contamination in the UK and obviously more broadly in Europe. The problem with this is if you look at the map and you see an area that doesn't have many dots on it, there aren't any samples showing PFAS, it doesn't mean it's not there. It just means that the organisations haven't sampled that area. Or it may mean that. I mean, there are clean areas, obviously, but I just wouldn't like people to look at the map and think, well, there are lots of dots there, so this is really contaminated and none there, so it's not. Often it's just because that's where the agencies or the water companies have been sampling and that's where there's data. In all, I think across the UK and Europe, there are 17,000 sites where sampling had picked up more than 10 nanograms per litre of PFAS in the uh, water or soils, and then a 1,000 or so that had around 1,000 nanograms per litre or more. But to kind of put that in context... In drinking water in the UK, the drinking water inspectorate says that anything above 100 nanograms per litre, if if that is found in a drinking water source, then the water companies must immediately do something to reduce that. In the EU, their standards are much lower. For example, Denmark, their drinking water standard is 2 nanograms per litre for the sum total of four PFASs, but a lot lower than our 100 nanograms per litre. Okay, so you found about a 1,000 sites where the levels were way, way above what would be allowable for drinking water. And actually, 300 of them, it was at concentrations of 10,000 nanograms per litre or more. So these numbers are pretty shocking. What conclusions should we be drawing from this? I think there are a couple of takeaways. One of them is that we're not really monitoring very much. 
in the last year or so, the Environment Agency have really picked up and, and the, so for the water companies, they've started to do a lot more testing, but it's only in the last year or two years. So I think our understanding of the contamination in this country is really, really limited. Looking at the data itself, there are some quite unpleasant things. So the sediments in the River Thames, were fat, they, they had very high levels of PFAS in them. There were flounder in the River Wire in the northwest of Blackpool that had PFAS up to 11,000 nanograms per kilogram, which is really very high. And as I say, the, the PFAS can leach down into groundwater and often that's used as drinking water sources, which is which can be a problem. But water companies say, well, that water would never reach your taps at high levels because you blend it with a different source or because we have a special treatment process in place to remove enough of it so you get a much lower dose. But there are also groundwater sources that aren't used for drinking water, but it might be used for livestock or it might be used for spraying crops. And um, it's just a, a big problem, therefore, then for farming, because you can get into the food change that way. Um, we also spoke to Ian Cousins, who's a, a scientist at Stockholm University, and he was saying that anything with readings above a thousand nanograms per litre should really be very urgently assessed and that local authorities should do more testing and they should check out the local produce uh, to determine if the health advisories would be needed to say, don't consume the fish, the shellfish, the free-range eggs, etc. You mentioned the River Wire, which is near Blackpool. And in the UK, this is where the highest levels were found, found in discharge from a chemical plant. So tell me about that site and what exactly was found there. We tested the discharge coming from the site where the chemicals factory uh, sits. And we found really high levels of PFOA, PFOA, at 12,000 nanograms per litre. And as I mentioned before, this is the one that's linked to those diseases. The company says that they don't manufacture PFOA and it could be a legacy issue. But I think just the problem is, you know, regardless of where it's coming from or how it's happening, there are high concentrations of this banned chemical making its way into the into the wire and we just you just wouldn't want it to be in there. Is there any way that these chemicals can be removed from the environment? There are processes in place where if it's in the wastewater treatment process and water companies have something called granular activated carbon as part of their process, then they can remove some PFASs. But I was talking to one scientist and they're saying, well, they don't know that they can move all PFASs. Maybe that's in place and that will get rid of the two problematic ones that we know about. But there are lots of PFASs whose molecules are slightly different who could probably get through. And then once you've treated that water, you end up with waste and that waste is full of PFAS. So you then have to dispose of that in some way. I think there are some sort of very, very uh, technical treatment processes that can do it, but I think it's very expensive. But if you had it in groundwater, just polluting an aquifer, I, I have no idea how you would go about trying to fix that. So it sounds like what we need to do is stop this pollution from entering our waterways in the first place. How do you see that happening? I think the only way that can happen is, is through regulation. There is some hope. Some companies have decided just to phase it out anyway. I, know, I think a while ago, McDonald's said they would remove it from their food packaging. If you can believe it's in food packaging, it's in lots of food packaging. Um, but also 3M, which is one of the biggest producers, made an announcement recently to say that they're planning to exit the PFAS market altogether and to phase out use in their, in their supply chains. So 
this is how it happens. You know, when big companies decide to take the lead, I mean, apart from companies volunteering to do it under a little bit of duress, it's about regulation. It's about saying, you, you know, you can't use these PFASs unless you can prove that they're not going to be harmful or just find an alternative unless it's utterly essential that you have to use it, say, for example, in medical processes or something like that, and then and then strictly controlled. It can't be a cleanup issue. It can't be about cleaning everything up. It has to be about stopping it happening in the first place. Although we have to clean it up because it's it's here and it's it's not going anywhere. Rachel, to me, it feels like it's this invisible issue that at some point down the line if we don't do something now like regulate we're really going to be hit with it when we actually understand the effects of these chemicals better and once they've continued to build up but having investigated this for a while are there things that consumers could do to avoid these chemicals in the meantime or are they just too widespread that's a question that I've been asking myself because it's not a great job just to be telling people that, you know, there's a really bad problem out there and there's not a great deal you can do about it. I would like to avoid PFAS, but I don't know how to do that. I would think twice if I was buying something, you know, waterproof or, or non-stick and I would, I would wonder, has that got PFAS in it? I mean, if, for example, if you're getting um, furniture, that a lot of furniture has got it in, if something is sort of stain proof, you think, oh, great, I'll get that carpet because I've got kids and if it's stain proof and I can just wipe it off, well, that, that's probably because it's got PFASs in it. So maybe don't get that carpet, get one that maybe might stain. There is very little advice, unfortunately, that I can give, apart from, you know, if people want to talk to their MPs about how they would prefer better regulation, that, that could be something that people could do. Well, Rachel, it's been fascinating and terrifying in equal measure. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Rachel Salvage. And you can read all of the coverage of this investigation at theguardian.com. And that's it for today. The producer was me, Madeline Finley. The sound design was by Joel Cox. And the executive producer was Ellie Bury. We'll be back on Thursday. See you then.